0: is specially formulated to resist them all day with up to 24-hour wear. And the best part? It performs better than Luxe mascaras at only a fraction of the cost. You can buy Panorama Mascara on Amazon today.
1: Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95.
2: Hey everyone, I'm Ian DeBorja, and welcome to IMDb's Movies That Changed My Life, a podcast where your favorite stars break down the films that made them who they are today. This week's guest is actor, comedian, and musician Reggie Watts. You may know Reggie from his role in Comedy Bang Bang, or as the bandleader for The Late Late Show with James Corden, but he joins me today to talk about his role as chancellor in the SpongeBob movie, Sponge on the Run. Reggie and I talk about the constructs of reality. That time, I saw him at a music festival in 2012 and the movies that changed his life. If you're enjoying the show and haven't given us a review yet, please do and I'll read it out on next week's episode. Thanks to Gerald Boards and T. Moses for the most recent five-star reviews. If you want to join in the conversation on social media, use the hashtag movies that changed my life and we'll read them out here as well. Thanks so much for listening. Here's Movies That Changed My Life with Reggie Watts. Reggie, I love when we get our firsts on the show. Uh, Typically, that means it's the first time we talk about a specific film or a specific director. But in your case, uh, you're the first guest I've actually seen live in person at a music festival. I saw you on stage way back in 2012. uh, And now I'm glad we get to talk full circle. What is it? Eight, nine years later. Yeah. Damn. uh, To discuss some of your favorite movies. I love it. Love it. We're going to talk about the movies that changed your life a little later in the episode. Before we get to that, let's chat a little bit about the Spongebob movie, Sponge on the Run. And I know you play the character of Chancellor, but um, for those who don't know, what, what's the plot of this movie? And, and then who do you play? Gary,
1: Gary goes, uh, uh, goes missing and everybody freaks out. And the reason why he goes missing is because uh, Poseidon, I believe it's Poseidon, not Neptune. Well, he has a skincare regimen and he needs his snails to make his skin look really good. So he rubs snails all over. And then once they're discarded, he just gets rid of them through a vacuum tube chute. And uh, he needs, uh, he's run out of snails. So he needs a a snail. And so, of course, um, the snail character, Gary, uh, gets uh, trapped and caught by them to be used as part of his skincare regimen. And so, of course, SpongeBob and the crew uh, Decide that they have to go on a rescue mission, and so they head to Atlantic City. Oh, sorry, Atlantis City.
2: Atlantis. Again. I wasn't sure. I was
1: like, is it Atlantis or did they just stick with Atlantic? No, Atlantis City. Yeah, so they go there, which yeah. is a giant, like you know, uh, what you would think—a gambling hub, whatever. Show Show Ganza and uh, and Poseidon is uh, is chilling there, you know, doing a skincare regimen. And they just need to get their friend back. And there's a whole wacky adventure road trip thing that happens. It's crazy, and uh, I'm going to see it tonight for the first time.
2: Oh, nice. Uh, and, and so, who do you play? You're the Chancellor, right? And yeah. What What do you get to do? Well, about? he's a take on
1: Chandler from Friends, and I do. You no, know, just kidding. He's um, yeah. So he's he's basically he's the right hand man to Poseidon. So he, you know, he's the guy who kind of does all the busy work, you know, and makes sure that he presents decrees and things to. Poseidon to sign and make sure that stuff that Poseidon wants is done and he's trying to stay you know, three steps ahead, that kind of a cap. But of course, he's got a little bit of his own agenda, uh, as those people tend to do. And so he slips in his own things that he needs
2: once in a while.
1: He, he's a really fun character. He's kind of like a jazz, a hep, hep jazz guy.
2: It's so funny. SpongeBob came out, I mean, 20 plus years ago, but it still has his hold like not only as a TV show in this movie, but it, ha- it has this infinite hold on the internet. Like people love the memes. I think people are trying to get it to, into the Super Bowl halftime show last year and all that sort of stuff. Do you have any theories? I know you are a master of the internet yourself. Do you have any theories as to why SpongeBob retains its relevance over these years?
1: It's like any good piece of art, you know. There's, there's just it's it's a timeless world concept show, and uh, it obviously you know it was in the night. 90- I remember seeing. That's the problem. It's like I don't remember a lot of the characters' names because I didn't. I didn't watch it when it was when it was out. I knew my friends were huge fans of it. I mean, like I was surrounded by fans of it, but I didn't have a TV at the time in the nineties. I didn't do anything in the nineties. I just kind of existed. I forgot to take photographs, which you know I'm I'm regretting now to this day. But. (laughs) Yeah, so I I knew of it. I saw the lunch boxes. I saw the paraphernalia. I saw people, you know, doing inside (laughs) jokes and doing their versions of the characters' voices and all that stuff. But I didn't really know a lot about it. But the things that I well, when I got this role, I got offered the role. uh, I I sat down with my friend Andrea, and who's like a huge, huge, huge fan of of the show. And we just sat down and I watched the very first episode and just kind of skipped through the seasons, you know, up until
0: you know from four
1: three ratio to 169. Um and uh uh yeah and I and I saw like in the beginning it started as something that was kind of underground, a little bit a kind of alternative, like a little punk rock.
2: Yeah, it's like a weird really weird.
1: Kind of, you know, in the same attitude milieu as like Ren and Stimpy, um, and uh, cat dog and all that stuff. But it it was definitely it was more innocent. So it was a little bit devoid of of the meanness. It had like the uh kind of the earnest simplicity of conflict that a lot of like children's cartoons would have, but it was Mm -hmm. so creative in the way that it did did things and the way the characters looked, the way they sound, and the things that they would say. So it was slightly subversive, underground, but earnest. And I think that that just kind of it it they detached, it's like the the idea became detached from all Uh, Points of reference and context so it became really its own kind of spaceship out in the universe And I think that's why it it stands the test of time because it's not associated to something topical at the time It's not associated to these memes and things like that They just kind of did what they wanted to do based off of this world. They wanted to um, To explore and to show to, to the audience so I think that's kind of what it is. It's why great art is great. It's why it's timeless is because it really is its own thing and it doesn't rely on anything else. It's 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 contained.
2: I'm looking forward to this. I, I'm very curious. Just from the trailer alone, looks pretty absurd, and I think it's going to hit all like the check boxes that people who either have loved St- SpongeBob from before or people who still do it uh, still do will uh, in- enjoy quite a bit. So that comes out March fourth. Uh, I'm sure you'll enjoy the screening tonight and uh, looking forward to to hearing you as chancellor in that. So let's jump to the movies that changed your life. So let's start off with uh, your first pick. This is from 1975. This is Monty Python and the Holy Grail, also one of my favorite movies, directed by the great Terry Gilliam and Terry Jones, written and starring Graham Chapman, John Cleese, Eric Idle, Terry Gilliam, Terry Jones, Michael Palin, also known as the iconic comedy troupe Monty Python. Uh, So talk to me about this. I mean, you are a stalwart in like comedy. Uh, I can only imagine how this movie influenced you. So what, what about the first time you watched Monty Python and the Holy Grail?
1: Man. I mean, I was a kid. Uh, I don't know how old I was. I guess it would have been, I would have been like nine or 10 years old. And uh, it was, I was watching PBS on my, on my mom's bed in her bedroom and on the little TV. And uh, PBS was running a, you know, fundraising thing as they do. And as a part of it, they were doing a, a Monty Python marathon of all, all their movies oh, up wow. to date. And they announced, uh, you know, the Holy grail and it, you know, and I, I found out, oh, it's like, it's set in medieval times. So it's going to be, I mean, that was my thing as a kid. I just, I love nights and medieval stuff, right. people, fantasy books and all that stuff. And so, um, yeah, so I was so excited. And then like, you know, the first scene is a beautiful green hillside with like the you know, the blue sky behind it, and you hear this <laughs> and then you just see crusting the hill, you see like, you know, uh King the King like coming over the hill with his crown, and you see him, he kinda looks like he's on a horse. And then when it's revealed, his whole body, he's just trotting like he's Acting like he's on a horse, as children do, and then his, and then then Terry Gilliam behind him, uh, yeah, as as the coconut, he's like, taking coconuts and like rubbing them or hitting them to make them sound like, and uh and he's got this gigantic backpack, and you know, it's just I from that moment when that w- was revealed that that's what that was, that sound and that scene and how it wasn't what I expected, from that point on through the entire rest of the movie, I was losing my mind. I was. I was laughing so much I was kind of out of breath and my mom would come in to to see if I was okay. Uh it it was it was crazy. That movie like it just blew open my mind. It was so stupid and ridiculous and absurd and so much of it just constantly the whole time. Cause I always loved absurdity as a, as a kid. Like, you know, I watched the Muppet show yeah. and the Muppet news flash moments were always so stupid and absurd. The whole show was absurd.
2: The whole show is incredible. I've been rewatching some of it on Disney plus. It's, I mean, it's, and it still holds up. It's so funny.
1: It's just, it's so good. It's another one of those things where they, it was, it always remained irreverent and sincere yeah. and, yeah. uh, and lovable, you know? And so growing up seeing that i was like oh yeah i love absurd shit. but then this movie came on, there was just like absurdity <laughs> turned up to hundred thousand percent and i just lost my shit i was like what the hell's happening and then of course like then you know that led to me discovering the whole world of monty python and, um but i mean it just taught me it taught me so well it kind of unlearned a lot you know mm-hmm. uh, is really kind of what that type of movie does. It, it it completely defrags and deconstructs your notion of what is funny and what do <laughs> what can adults do, you know, right. like like are adults adults? What are humans? You know that <laughs> that kind of shit.
2: The thing that's also great about all Python, but Monty about Holy Grail in particular, is that that movie continues to give as you get older with the movie. Like one of my favorite scenes from the film is like, you know, I'm being oppressed. I'm being oppressed, and he's just talking about like the the bureaucratic nature and the hierarchy system and yes. how like they're just serfs. And obviously, I don't get that when I'm 10 years old watching it for the first time. But when you rewatch it, when like you know, I'm in college, I'm like, oh my god, like this is just so so funny, and it just keeps delivering. I mean, did you have moments like that where like as you rewatch it, some similar experiences? I think I, I
1: think i this is this is gonna sound crazy, but I think I've only seen it maybe twice. I saw it really? once when okay, I, yeah. go
2: on about that. Yes, I, I'd yeah. love to hear more of that.
1: I saw it when I was a kid, and and I I loved it. I mean, I loved you know every single scene. There wasn't really a scene where I was like, "What?" It was it was like. Because even if I didn't understand, you know, what they're speaking about, you know, quasi politically, you know, when they're like, you know, they're, they're they're sitting in mud and you don't even know what they're doing. They're just like (laughs) taking mud and like just moving it from one location to another. It's (laughs) like, it's like the absurdity of like, what, what do people do and why are they even working in the first place? Um, (laughs) You know, like that whole thing. But, you know, even though I may not have understood the intricacies, I knew that they were talking about. Like how stupid it is that we're doing whatever we're doing for whatever reason we're doing, and 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 that was enough. You know, even the argument of the, uh, you know, the African swallow.
2: You oh know, my god! Yeah, uh, the, the, whole, the wing flight velocity, and yeah. wing speed velocity. Yeah.
1: You know, li- listening to them argue or you know discuss uh, the the nature of physics versus the species of different types of birds. Uh, right. That was something that I understood to be just it's just just kind of like it's just people speaking about stuff to just kind of fill the air with things just to have a semblance of a conversation you know and it was just so ridiculous that people would take that so seriously obviously and in their situation being in medieval times or whatever and they're (laughs) arguing over a castle wall you know the guys, the guys at the bottom the guys at the top whatever um and so you know, and then the rest of the movie just kind of zooms in and out between absurdity and uh, the you know existential questions of yeah. you know, human nature and things like that, and it, the combination of all those things just it just was so mind blowing that uh, you know people smart people with very very silly temperaments and a will to create things that reflect that uh, it's rare. You know, and uh, and Monty Python just wholeheartedly, single I mean, I mean, not all of their stuff is like brilliant, but I'd say in totality, they're one of the yeah. most important forces uh, in you know, it projected uh, art in recent times in the last hundred years.
2: Yeah, I mean, they're just they're just range of stuff. Like, obviously the. Uh, flying circus gags, like some of them are more obvious, right? Like the spam skit or whatever. But then you have like yeah. philosopher soccer, which I think is like the most brilliant sketch. It's so stupid. Every line is just about everyone's different philosophies and stuff. I mean, it's Nietzsche. just insane. Yeah, and it's like,
1: yeah. <laughs> That's so good, Freud, and they and they did such a great. It's just great. It's like what they. It's all about extreme juxtaposition, you know. And they mm-hmm. were. So great at like taking something mundane and then just putting something extraordinary, like the funniest joke, you know, that one that was like so funny that the German. Oh,
2: right. You couldn't say it.
1: Yeah, you couldn't say it. And the way that the dude reacts, the German dude reacts when he finally like he reads it and he just has this like really gentle like. <laughs> yeah. And just, dives in. It's just Yeah. Like, and then they're, they're, they're all running in a battlefield with the, with the joke, <laughs> yeah, and, they're just, and they just. their head? They have their headphones yeah, they have on, headphones yeah. so they can't hear it. <laughs>
2: like, yeah, because apparently so reading good. it is okay,
1: but you can't hear yeah.
2: it. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. I mean, you you've only watched it twice. So, um, what was that? What about the second time you watched it? Was there a reason you decided to like throw it on again, or you just sort of? You know, I was
1: I was in my twenties and uh I was young and saw the world as a different place no uh, I, uh, I just I wanted you know, I just kind of wanted to see it again. I think it was with some like some friends you know in my friend right. group in my twenties, and we just kind of threw it on to watch it one night and i mean it's it was still kind of the same feeling, I mean, obviously, as a kid, when you have that first experience,
2: last question here on uh, Holy Grail yeah, do you like find yourself seeing like Monty Python styles of comedy, like still coming into your your music, your your comedy, all that sort of stuff.
1: I mean, they inspired me to really, uh, you know, pursue comedy. uh, Even as you know, I was always a class clown since I can remember. I loved it, but when Monty Python came along, you know, it's like you know, as a kid, you're always like, you get something happens, and then you start mimicking it because it's it's so impactful to your life. And Monty Python was, I was already. Watching a lot of PBS. I grew up on PBS, so I watched a lot of period pieces and mystery things, you know, Mrs. Marple's, and you know, Inspector Poirot, and, uh, you know, mystery theater and all that stuff. Masterpiece theater. So I was always speaking in an English accent anyways because I was an (laughs) Anglophile. For some reason, my mother's French, but I was an Anglophile. I have no idea. I'll have to figure that out. But um, so I was already fascinated with that culture. And then when, you know, the medieval stuff, I was super into it. So when that movie came out, the, the the temperament of all this, people talking like this oh that's nice oh yeah no yeah i would love to do that like i was i was I, I i i totally freaked out on on that i i
2: yeah
1: i just yeah i just i just kind of fixated on that and and would try to do as many of those accents as possible uh in my in my daily life and so it and the absurdity of it And just how silly, it's like, no, I'm not, yes, you are, no, I'm not, yes, you are, now you are, ah, yes, maybe perhaps I'm not. Like that whole logic, the double speak, and the the paradoxical language, I totally took that and really ran with that at school and probably annoyed many, many
2: people. (laughs) Well, that annoyance paid off, so.
0: This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. Vilo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. Visit SleepingDogsMovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's SleepingDogsMovie.com slash Wondery. Uh,
2: awesome. So that was Monty Python on the Holy Grail. Let's go to your second movie. This is 1982's Pink Floyd, The Wall. Directed by Alan Parker with animation by Gerald Scarfe. Written by Roger Waters, uh, featuring the music of Roger Waters and Pink Floyd. Starring Bob Geldof, Christine Hargraves, and James Lawrenson. So for those who haven't seen this one, Pink Floyd, The Wall is basically... uh, the album "The Wall" put to the storyline of uh, a young rock star who is having issues with his fame, and it, it kind of goes backwards and forwards in time, trying to examine how he got to his point in fame, like with the relationship with his mother and father, all told through the music of Pink Floyd's "The Wall." Um, so, talk to me about this one.
1: Yeah, yeah, I saw this uh, in 2026, and it was <laughs> it was a different time uh, back then. No, I, I saw I, I probably saw this in like nineteen I'm gonna say probably nineteen eighty eight is when I saw it. And I was with a bunch of my friends in Helena, Montana. I, I grew up in Great Falls, so we were in Helena. Helena's like hour and a half away from Great Falls in the capital. And so we were there with a bunch of actors. And uh, cause we were there for a weekend to just kind of party with some, some other actors who were in uh, competitive dram- dramatics. And I was also a competitive drama person. So mm-hmm. uh, we'd made friends while doing meets around or whatever. So we were hanging out and we were in the basement of one of the actors. And uh, I think it was just like, maybe like four girls and maybe three guys or something like that. We were all huddled in this basement on this couch. It was so heavy you know, and yeah. it, it, it it was all the things, right? It's like, again, I was an Anglophile. So it had, you know, the sure. English, you know, heavy English classism aspects, uh, you know, mm-hmm. dealing with depression and psychological issues, uh, you know, all, a bunch of social commentary, um, the unfairness of the hierarchical system children wanting to find originality, but being forced into this kind of like cookie cutter factory, like existence. And yet it had such an amorphous fluid, uh, journey kind of gate and tempo to it with, you know, and the music of course, I mean, that was the central aspect of it, but the way that it just morphed from one thing to the next, uh, it just, it just really blew my mind. I I, I could, I just couldn't believe what I was watching. It was another one of those when we were kids and we should have just been like, Oh, look at that funny thing. Oh, this weird. Why is he looking at it? You know, whatever. And people really didn't talk. People were just, they they just, we we went into (laughs) the movie. We were in the movie together and, uh, and it just blew me away because the music was so incredible and also so Mm -hmm. sad, you know, emotional, but triumphant uh, in a way and empowering in a way uh and made you feel whatever they wanted us to feel they were making us feel mm-hmm. that way like it was such a clear vision what you know everybody involved the animators the band the vision behind it, it all unified to create this really a perfect art piece musical art piece and it really blew me away in the sense that oh, oh music paired with i'd never seen a, a music-based movie like a movie and
0: you know, obviously right. there was tommy like
1: or you know, pinball was all that right. but i just i wasn't really interested in that and, um when pink floyd came along it was just like kind of like oh yeah sure throw it on and then holy shit. so that turned me on to that whole idea i mean aside from the whiz which mm-hmm. doesn't really count um
2: sure doesn't yeah count, right. but
1: so that was my first exposure to like how powerful music when paired with visualization and storytelling in a, in a film format, um, how how powerful that could be.
2: Which tying back to what I said at the top of the episode, I mean, when you, for folks who haven't seen Reggie perform live, I mean, you have your loop pedal in front of you, you're telling jokes in between you're looping and you're stopping it. So, and then in a concert setting, like at a festival setting, there's lights and all this sort of stuff that really like all pair together for one storytelling, you know, comedy, music, Experience so that I mean that's it's interesting that that sort of stem from there is that where you kind of got the idea to to merge these ideas for your own like personal performance style.
1: That's hard to say. I mean, I, I since, since I was a little kid, I was always mixing up media. Anyways, you know, so if I was on the playground, mm-hmm. you know, I used to play this game where I had my winter jacket and they had like the little tassels with like the fake horns or those like wooden nubs or whatever yeah, that you yeah, fit yeah. in the loop or whatever. I, <laughs> yeah, It's like loops, it's kind of yeah. like an old world style of fastening something, which is kind of <laughs> like it's okay, but most people never use them, so they're always just dangling. Um and it just looks like an afterthought. But anyways, uh I used to stand there, you know, on the playground in winter in my coat, and I would stand motionless like a statue and then kids would come up and they would pull on one of those things. And then I would come to life, like, you know, like, like, like those statues, you know, that you see people, whatever, like way before I even knew about the statues, I was like, I was way ahead of the curve. Um, But I was standing on the, you know, and someone would pull the tassel thing and and then I would be like, Hey, 98.9 FM giving you the best in rock and roll. Here's a new hit from Pat Benatar. Get ready. And I would start singing it. And then every time they'd pull it, I'd change the radio station and change a song. (laughs) <laughs> and so I, I was always like just, you know, kind of ADD, you know, to switching hard switches and things like that. And Monty right. Python definitely affirmed that, you know, because their whole thing was like mm-hmm. sometimes it would be a gradual crossfade. It was all about transitions. You know, they were masters of transitions. It'd be a gradual fade or the camera would just pan and then there would be another set set up, you know, or someone gets up and right, a yeah, walks scene. into right. another set, you know, or it's just be a hard cut to a new thing. So. And now for something completely different, you know, whatever. And then like this interstitial, and then right. like a hard cut. So um, my mind was kind of already there. And then when I did competitive drama in high school, uh, you know, I improvised. Well, the first year I competed in solo humorous solo. psychic, year was humorous duo. But the first year. I was just, my, my teacher just let me do whatever. So I was improvising and just doing like Michael Jackson impressions, Bill Cosby impressions, uh, you know, uh, singing a song, then like doing like a British, you know, kind of Monty Python-esque like exchange or whatever. Um And Or physical bits, you know, um, like pulling fake underwear that I had and tucked in my pants, you know, like just (laughs) feeling like making it look like I ripped them out, you know, whatever. And threw them at, you know, people in the classroom. So I (laughs) I was always mixing all that stuff anyways. Mm -hmm. um, But definitely the wall, I think more in an artistic sense, if I were, it was more inspirational to me to make something like that at some point in the future.
2: Mm. Awesome. So let's jump to your last movie here. This is uh, another heady movie, uh, 1999's The Matrix, written and directed by Lana and Lily Wachowski, starring Keanu Reeves, Lawrence Fishburne, and Carrie Ann Moss. Um, so so talk to, me, talk to me about The Matrix.
1: The Matrix did this, I think it was one of the first films that didn't really advertise too much. Mm-hmm. You know, Yeah, the they just had
2: like the posters. I, I kind of remember it's like posters. really- just like and like the green text ads and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. You didn't really know much, right? Yeah,
1: and then and then you did see like the famous bullet time shot.
2: Bullet time stuff, right?
1: That, the, just yeah. like that one shot was like yeah. people were like, What the fuck is this? You know. Um <laughs> and I was definitely one of those people. But when it I think it came out the the first week it came out, I think I saw probably one of the first matinees. You know, when Mat mm-hmm. I think matinees technically sometimes they come out on Wednesdays or whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I went to it, uh, theater. I was living in Seattle at the time. And so I, oh,
2: nice. I'm in Seattle. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Oh,
1: sea town. <laughs> yeah. It's a very different place. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, but I love it. The summers are great. Um, yes. Yeah. So, so I was in Seattle and I think I was at, uh, I was at, uh, what's that place called? Uh, Pacific Pacific Plaza. Yeah, Pacific Plaza, there's a movie theater in there, I believe. Yeah, yeah, right? there is. It was at, you know, probably like 2 in the afternoon, 2.30 showing or something like that. And I went in and there was probably like, I don't know, 12 people in the theater, maybe. And I was with my friend Sean and maybe another friend. And we sat down. The movie came on and, you know, the, the beginning is like, it's oh, yeah. so... It, so empowering like that that whole like what's going on there's like a voice that comes on and it's like guiding him and he's like what what's what the f- is going on and then like he's getting these clues and insights you know and the guy like you know his neighbor wants him to do a thing and he gives him a disc or whatever and he's like it's like have you ever thought about like have you ever thought that maybe we're in a dream or you know whatever he says and then the guy's like oh yeah it's called as you say mescaline (laughs) mescaline peyote he's like yeah it's called mescaline it's the only way to fly and I was like oh that's so controversial Um, and and, uh, and then the moment where you know the moment where Carrie Ann Moss is like you know she's running from the agents or whatever Mm -hmm. and she's in the phone booth and there's like the truck you know heading for her and she's like she looks and she puts her hand on the door and then you know it's over and then the phone's just like hanging there and like what is going on um that whole notion of being in another reality, uh, you know, coming from another reality but being uh, present in an alternate reality that isn't the base reality—I mean, it just blew my mind. And the whole idea of it being computer-based and sci- uh, science-based mm-hmm. and technical, um, mixed with. The sexiness. It's like, you know, because sometimes a movie is like, you know, here's a world, here's how characters dress and act, and here's the language they use, and this is the way it looks visually. And you're like, oh, it's, sometimes it's it's just cool looking, right? But right. but having it be a virtual world, there's a reason for it to look cool. There's mm-hmm. a reason why they're driving in a continental with suicide doors. There's a reason right. why, you know, she's always wearing these sick suits or whatever. There's a reason why, you know. And so it gave it this cool context where you're like on the outside, people are just kind of like Poor and wearing ratty clothing and, and eating amino acid, you know, whatever slop. Right. And, um, but when they're inside, they, they really style it up. Um, <laughs> uh, but that whole idea mixed with a Messiah, a messianic kind of, uh, tale. Uh, I mean it was so many things happening simultaneously and it just hit every cool factor. I mean, it was
2: mm-hmm.
1: the big, like big beat music, uh, electronic yeah. music, uh, sexy, like BDSM, uh, gender roles, uh, you know,
2: non-conforming gender roles, even. Yes. You know, non-conforming or, or gender, gender there, roles. So. Yeah. I guess that's
1: what I mean. Yeah. It's a non-conforming generals, yeah. gender roles, club culture, underground culture, um, and mixed with, you know, the danger of, of a system that's, uh, self-created ultimately by us, uh, by humanity itself. That's then, you know, cognizant and then running its own paradigm, its own program. I mean, all that was dope. And then the idea that you could bend – if you became aware of your reality, you could actually bend reality. You could bend the rules of the, rea- of the reality. And then, of course, the – I don't know. It, it was just – it was heavy, man. It was a heavy movie and it hit me and I went and saw that movie probably seven times in the theater. And I was taking different friends to see it.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I, I rewatched this maybe a, a year or two ago. And I remember – and I, I watched it with my wife. She had never seen it. And I remember when she watched it, she was like kind of in awe of how predictive the movie was. I mean, sci-fi always kind of tends to end up being predictive in various ways, but The Matrix, like in a lot of ways, like really, really is. uh, Obviously, like the extreme stuff, but just like the VRness and how people are scared that the machines are going to take over and all sorts of stuff. I mean, they just hit everything on the head. Basically, it's that's, I think it's also speaking of timeless things, why it also makes it like a timeless movie is that you can see where they're coming from, but just years ahead of everyone else. Yeah.
1: I mean, it, it, and it is it. And in my mind, yes, it definitely has the timeless factor because it was speaking on things that were kind of inevitable. I mean, if you're in tune with technology, it wasn't that, you know, they were just in tune with it. So you could just see where the net was heading anyways. Um, and obviously they're extrapolating like far in the future, but, um, you know, it's kind of like a warning thing, but obviously it's just like a world of like consideration, but I, but it's almost a perfect movie. I would say, uh, except for, uh, yes, the very, very end when he's okay. in the telephone booth and he gets done and then he flies away. If I could, if I could have a re-edit of that movie, I would have him not fly away. I would have him, and it even
2: freeze frames, right? Doesn't it freeze frame on I, him flying I think so. even add make it a little bit <laughs> yeah. goofier?
1: Yeah, and I was like ah f- that thing. Like I was, I was just like, I was like ah that was the only part that I it just took me out. I was like why, like why you know what he's like he can master reality, like why you know fly away at the end. It was just kind of it was it was weird. So, but other than that, and maybe the flex was a little it was an interesting moment. I was like, and
2: "Ah." and the waves of, yeah.
1: And I was like, that's interesting. I was kind of like on the fence about that one, but everything, (laughs) everything else. I mean, like I know Kung Fu, you know I mean? All that. It was, I I love that. Even the thing, like where it's like, we're we're just batteries, you know, like that, that idea. I love how like that's, just stupid right like they're like why would machines like machines would just invent battery tech why would they use need humans to you know create an artificial reality so they didn't know that they were being harnessed for energy um right i mean even that it was fine it was fine because it's just i love how simple that was like yeah just want, (laughs) need us for power which i just i just think that's great and and also that whole um the construct scene, you know, the training sequences, mm-hmm. and um, that whole thing about you know agents being able to inhabit any body that they want at any given point, and like you know him, you know, look again or whatever, and the the woman in the red dress who's distracting him is an is a is an agent with like a oversized forty five so magnum, yeah.
2: you know. <laughs> and, <laughs> when he goes, uh, you like the girl in red? Yeah, hey, okay. I made her. I can set up a date, right? <laughs> oh yeah,
1: that's right. <laughs> I know, I know. That's so nerdy. I mean, it's obviously such a. Like a I a coder bullshit I know that they would totally do it's like <laughs> oh you really like it? or you like it like, like oh yeah <laughs> uh,
2: has a matrix influenced you um, like your work in, in any way do you find or sort of just was sort of a awakening for you as a viewer
1: it definitely put me on that quest of you know, the the kind of simulation theory of life, I, I was already feeling that way as a, as a kid anyways, you know, I was, mm-hmm. I was, you because know, the, the idea of, of virtual reality did exist in the 80s as well, obviously. And then before that, it was just like dreams or like Carlos Castaneda, like how to become aware of yourself <laughs> in dreams, you know, so that idea of becoming aware of awareness itself and, and then that cascading effect of awareness on top of itself, awareness is something I was interested in as a kid, but then you know, there was like virtual boy and, you know, and, and early, early (laughs) virtual reality, like 1987, like, it's like virtual reality promises to blow, you know, like there's like this, the future is virtual reality, of course, you know, so I was a little bit of aware of it. And then of course, like 13th floor came out, um, Mm -hmm. which was another like amazing movie existence. Um, right. And you know, the matrix and there were these like alternate reality movies or, or even like, I'll take it back to 19, was it 1984? Four eighty three maybe Dreamscape.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, Dreamscape, yeah. That was you know
1: that was a show about uh, you know people who had the ability to be active inside of other people's dreams, inside the dreamscape. And so the guy is like hired to be an assassin to like kill the president right. in his dreams. But uh <laughs> but a fantastic, amazing movie. And I saw it with my dad actually, I'm just remembering this for the first time. But, you know, so that idea of like going into other realities or even Narnia, you know, the, the Chronicles of Narnia. Right. That that type of stuff. Sure. So that was there. But the Matrix kind of quantified it in such a sexy way that incorporated my love of electronic music and um, subculture and, and all that stuff. So it definitely has a it, it had a huge impact in that I kind of went deeper into those thought those thought processes and you know and even you know inspiring me to you know uh, research more of the the quantum quantum physicists you know at the time releasing their books about like the possibilities of reality and like the Tao of physics and those right. types of books that were like comparing Eastern mysticism with modern theoretical mm-hmm. quantum physics. So. It definitely—it's it, just always in there, you know—that idea of programming language, using that to describe our current world and viewing our world as like a computer simulation. To an extent, um, I find to be kind of healthy.
2: All right. So, last question here: We have Monty Python on the Holy Grail, Pink Floyd The Wall, and The Matrix. Do you see a through line between the three films as to why you selected uh, these these films to talk about today? Oh, nice. Um, yeah,
1: I th- I, th- I think they I think they all deal with reorienting our our association to reality and mm-hmm. uh you know it's like you should question you know question reality is, I hate that phrase because it just sounds like a terrible <laughs> bumper sticker but um but it does <laughs> it does make you question your life and your your role in it and what are human beings and why am i even aware of myself and why am i even aware why am i even able to ask the questions of why am i aware you know so hmm and 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 how does it relate how can it be related to your life and in in real moments that aren't just conceptual like how does it make you feel uh emotionally about things that have happened to you uh how does it make you want to project a different reality you'd like to live in that you think would be more helpful to people like i think that that's kind of the through line it's it's kind of to defrag decontextualize make you disoriented disoriented and then and then think of ways of, uh, well, what does that mean to me? And how, how can, how is that useful aside from, you know, as an artist, like I want to achieve that form of uh, altered state. I want to be, be able to project an idea that creates an altered state for a moment for, for people to consider themselves in a different context. So I think all of those movies do that very, very well. And with, you know, in the, in the case of Monty Python, the absurdity and the silliness and the, and, and just how, funny it is and the matrix serious. And, you know, but there are those moments of levity that are beautiful. Mm-hmm. And then, um, and then with pink Floyd's the wall, it doesn't ever get funny, but it's, um, <laughs> but, but it puts you in a world. It just puts you in this world that has its own, uh, version of levity. Um, and so, yeah, I think that they're all related in that
2: way. All right. Well, this was a lot of fun. Uh, I, I loved hearing your perspective on all of these. Like half what I expected to hear, and then just a bunch of stuff that I just like loved hearing you talk about like in in depth. So the SpongeBob movie on the run, March fourth. You're playing Chancellor. Uh, anything else about that? Just you know, check it out if you can. Awesome. Well, thanks a lot, uh, and uh, we'll talk soon.
1: Yeah, man. Thank you so much. I'll see you next week. Same yeah. Time. <laughs>
2: Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to head over to imdb.com slash podcasts for more content on Reggie and to easily add the movies that changed his life to your IMDb watchlist.